0: Hello and welcome to Social Design Insights. I'm your co-host Eric Kessel and I'm joined as always by Emiliano Gandolfi.
1: Hello everybody. We're here today uh, with uh, Sergio Palaroni. Uh, this is the second uh, episode of uh, his interview and we're going to be looking today more at the projects that actually signed uh, his career.
0: We left off last week with a fascinating discussion about the trajectory of the social design movement with Sergio sharing his personal experiences. And if you didn't catch that podcast, it's on our website at currystonedesignprize.com. Please check it out, not only because it's a fascinating discussion, but it sets a little bit of framework for what we're going to be talking about in this episode. We discussed the 30-year history both of Sergio's career and the social design movement and how we came to be where we are. We're hoping today, Sergio, that you could tell us uh, a little bit about, from a project standpoint, how these philosophies get baked into the, the concrete, as as we used to say.
2: So today I was I thought I kind of would delve into two projects. The first one, which I'll start out with, was not the first project we got started in this. My work really began in force in Mexico, but I'm going to take a moment to move into something that happened afterwards, but it's now 20 years into it, which is the American Indian Housing Initiative. This is a project that happened in the United States. It involved a response initially to a request that came out of nowhere. People were beginning to become aware of what we were doing, and uh, we got a request from somebody just writing us and saying, you know, we've heard that you do housing. We're trying to address the need of a family in American Indian housing, and it's a family that the child really doesn't want to go off to college because he's made a promise that he wants to give his mother a house before he would go off. So the project began simply as that, did a simple request, and we moved to work in the Crow Reservation, which was where this the family was based. The mother was on a housing list, but she was one of several hundred on the housing list, so her chance of getting housing was minimal. The mother had been extraordinary in the sense that she had been One of these extraordinary people who had taken in literally almost hundreds of kids and helped them. We had a lot of kids who are just kind of homeless or, you know, in transition in the American Indian reservations. It's tragic, the social situation. And she played this kind of force, which was recognized, but she always remained the outsider. And so she didn't have even political will, you know, to get a house. We constructed this house. At that point, with my partner, David Riley, who was a professor of engineering, we were just experimenting with straw bale construction. And we uh, came out, I was at the University of Washington, and we built her what was really the first full-scale straw bale building we'd done. We've been doing migrant housing in straw bale, smaller scale, experiment with the principles, and we came out here and built this house. Kind of a disaster, you know, first time. We're load-bearing, a very difficult technology. But we survived the experience, and it was transformative in the sense that we realized why we were there. The woman. Peggy, went on to found the Center Pole Foundation. Her life was transformed by this building, and she in turn created a nonprofit that now creates a support mechanism for Native Americans. We have since built dozens of buildings in the whole region in Stravel. We've built an, uh, most of a college, the Knife Native American College, which is a major force in education in the region. We've built housing for better women, etc. But this first experience was fundamental because we discovered herself. she discovered herself, we became lasting friends. How much she was transformed by the experience, I think, inspired us to really kind of create the American Indian Housing Initiative with Red Feather Development. And we made a commitment, which we've honored since then. Now, what's interesting about this is that it didn't stay in housing because we started helping American Indian housing agencies to make housing, you know, and to do sustainable, more locally sourced housing, which we are... Alternative response to what they'd normally do, which is they would get manufactured houses. They were kind of being downgraded from the military. The military would be done with them, and they, they hand them off to the, the Native American reservations. And then they, you know, the housing authority of the tribe will hand them out. And they're already kind of been beaten up by the military. And they get them, and they're totally inappropriate. So the wrong housing response. So it doesn't really better the situation. So here was a house that was transformative. this cozy, locally made, locally sourced house you know that we made for her and it's really kind of changed everybody and we did it very successfully for the next decade we moved from this to begin to really as we got to know the tribe better to move to begin to have a more progressive agenda with the housing authority of the Cheyenne next door to begin to address like the condition of battered women and where would they transition to and eventually to kind of help create and kind of really kind of expand dramatically the campus of the Native American college that serves the region and it's really the only avenue to transformation and change in the communities. and it's an amazing organization and so slowly we became kind of involved in having a deep conversation with the tribe about systemic change and what did that entail and where would that go? So that's been great. It's been highly successful over two decades, been amazing and transformed as I've mentioned and influenced our other work and we went on to write the code for straw bale construction for the region and we began to do further research and we got grants for education from the National Science Foundation and STEM education so what started as a simple architecture and response group to become a research program and education program. we began to see what were the education needs, how could we help meet them, how could we create an institution that would meet them, how could we help the situation of women we had met who were battered and things like that, all these things I've mentioned but what's interesting is that three years ago now, the tribe experienced this massive fires because of the changing environment. And they came to us and they said, you know, we weren't ready. We consider ourselves very connected to the land. And yet the fires came through. We knew the environment was changing. It was getting drier because of fracking and because of the environment getting hotter. Yet the fire surprised us and we, we just didn't know what to do. We realized when the fires happened, people... Were decimated because they didn't know where to go. with anything, you know where to take refuge or where they should gather or connect. And we realized we had no emergency plan. And we kind of went back to the reservation and realized there was one there, but nobody was aware of it. And then we took that step. And as we began to have a conversation, pick up on the conversation we've been having with them twenty years. We realized that what they really needed was what we do now in emergency planning, which is look at resilience planning. That this conversation, this new conversation we're having, could be a kind of a way to do something we hadn't done yet, which is to have the whole native population begin to engage and how do we as an entire system begin to plan for the future, plan for to create a systemic approach which really looks at how all the different pieces in our native population work. How do we fundamentally go back and look at this so we create a more resilient community that can actually move forward? This disaster has actually led over the last three years to a kind of planning process which has allowed us to engage the tribal council, engage the schools, engage former clients, even engage the college in this kind of larger planning process about how all these things might fit together in a kind of more cohesive community, which is really where we want to head. So. It's interesting, I started out as an architect, and I ended up as a planner. So, <laughs> or, you know, hey, I've gone back to my roots in emergency relief and reconstruction, you know, in a kind of bizarre, kind of roundabout way. But it's actually been a good spot. Our building process is more tactical now. So, for instance, in the last three years, we've been rebuilding structures, critical structures. that have been burned barns for horses and a deck for a tribal leader who who is who's now disabled, things like that but each of these now i would say is a kind of stage for continuing the conversation because it's much easier to engage people in a conversation not by sitting down 30 people around a room and forcing ourselves to be insightful but to sit around in the evenings around the fire and invite everybody after the end of the day at work where some people have come and volunteered and then sit down and say well you know i had a thought on what you said yesterday and, and make sure that that conversation you know, you stage it over the 20 days or 30 days you might be out there rebuilding something. These these projects are acupuncture in a way to incite the conversation, to promote this discussion, the fundamental discussion, and to make people at ease to have these kind of conversations that are hard to have.
1: What I think is fascinating is how somehow you inserted yourself in the community and through a a small dialogue uh, with the first project, How to Make a House, it became more of an understanding of what were the challenges that these communities were facing. How did you establish this conversation and what do you think are also the major challenges that these communities are facing?
2: I have to then pay tribute to my experience in Mexico. I, I spoke last week about being influenced by Paulo Freire and Illich and this idea that development should go back to its roots and there should be a fundamental discussion that was never had, which needed to be had before we could really do fundamental change through development, not just build big housing blocks, et cetera. In a sense, I was cheating because I was already having those kind of conversations in in Mexico and in Latin America. And so I was trained to just kind of listen. So I... The construction site, even though it was insane and it was winter and we were camping like uh, crazy, every time I had a chance at the end of the day, I said, hey, have you ever eaten Italian? Which you, Emiliano would appreciate. And um, making pasta in their kitchen by hand. My grandmother in Bologna would be happy. But anyway, kind of like you know, having this kind of fundamental uh, inciting and staging, essentially, this conversation. Because I was interested not just in the project, but also the kind of story that had led to us to build this house. This was groundbreaking for them because they were so removed from the forces that guide their life. Like they receive aid from the federal government. They receive these things, but they are so disconnected. They've essentially been so marginalized that they have no idea who the people that are affecting their lives. So you have somebody who came to help and build a house and things like that actually engage in a conversation with them. They loved us. You know, by the end of the first year, I was already a tribal member with David. You know, we conducted into one of the Buffalo tribe groups and clans and, you know, belong to several tribal units now. But that conversation that we had there began to be like in the nature of all conversations you have with communities. It's next time Peggy invited three other friends to the conversation. And she went up to the meeting of the tribal council and said, you know, we're doing this thing. These people are amazing. You should be there. And we expanded the conversation. And so more people kept coming up. And so by the time we finished, there was a kind of a community that was been created around the creation of this building. And I think that that's been true and increasingly true to the point that now, when I go back, I have this kind of history with this community now. I'm working with young Native Americans who have created an organization called Eco Cheyenne, who have become militant kind of ecologists who are suing the building of a dam and trying to get jobs in this kind of green enterprises, which we introduced them to and things like that. And I knew them as little tiny kids, five-year-olds and other 25-year-old leaders, super leaders. So I I think that the conversation has now transcended, it has a history to it, which makes it more substantial. So we don't have to start at zero, you know, we have now, we're sitting on what has been a 20-year dialogue.
1: Sergio, thank you for sharing this anecdote. Hearing you describe how to engage a community makes it clear that you're a natural community builder. And now we even discover your secret. It's all about Italian cuisine. Well, we're taking a short break, but we will be back soon. Please don't forget to check out our website, currystonedesignprice.com to learn more about our interviewees.
0: Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We're here midway through the second part of our interview with Sergio Pallaroni of the Center for Public Interest Design at Portland State University. Sergio, before the break, you were discussing the community-based nature of your design, and I was wondering whether you'd be so daring as to call it a return to normal. While you were speaking, I couldn't help but think that for most of prehistory, building was always communal. It always involved conversation, it always involved the community. This was just the way that we built things, and with the advent of industrialization and the post-war building boom, people got detached, and certain vulnerable communities like minorities and Native Americans were especially detached, as you said, from the forces that drive their lives. So in a way, this process, this design process that you're describing, seems like a return of the way that humankind developed and built their communities basically since the beginning of time. That may be too historicist a view of things, but I'd be interested in your thoughts.
2: I think that's probably fundamentally true. I think that there is a kind of disconnect. It wasn't an in intention of modernity to have this disconnection. Modern architecture emerged as a kind of trying to solve the world's ills, and you know, that's how I saw it. And somehow, in trying to achieve scale and trying to be a bigger force, it lost itself from the things that motivated it. Yes, we are solving things at a larger scale, but somehow we lost the connection to communities. Maybe the first signs of that were the reaction you know, you began to see John Norton, some of the group that was around the AA in the 1960s and things like that, and Hassan Fathi, who was teaching there, a kind of like going back to communities and kind of embedding yourself in communities and realizing that something had been lost. We, we appreciated the attempt to do it at scale of the international style, but we knew that we were missing something by doing it at that scale, you know. There was a contradiction there. And I think of people like Dan Patera, an extraordinary friend and somebody I highly respect in Detroit and realizing that he's engaging the entire city of Detroit in this conversation. He's like doing what I'm doing, but at a massive scale, you know, essentially trying to do both, you know, trying to involve everybody at scale in the conversation and yet produce solutions at scale. I'm not going to see that part in my life, but I'm, I mean, in my own work, but I'm still enamored by that first, you know, hand-to-hand contact, but I, I really believe in systemic change. Everything that I set out, I always tell my students and the people in our center that everything we set out should be reproducible. Our solutions shouldn't be unique, but what we should leave behind is the ability to reproduce this building. That, By that, I mean be able to know the way you might get to the building, but how you might produce it and who has the skill in the community to do it and to be able to understand the assets in the community that would allow you to kind of scale it up and to essentially have a roadmap to how you might finance it and things like that, and that that skill would remain the community, you know, even if we never return. But we always make a commitment to return. You know, we always make a commitment for at least five years in every community is to make sure that the system we try to implement, not just the building, really kind of becomes embedded. I believe, you know, in replicability and scalability. So I think if you can't promise, you know, scale changes, you're only getting there halfway.
0: And what's the process for doing that, Sergio? I mean, you work with a community and there are lessons learned there and you wanna make sure that it's replicable and that the ideas and processes are translatable to another community while acknowledging that every community is unique. I mean, what has your experience been in terms of the translatability between a, a disaster ravaged neighborhood in Mexico City and a Native American Indian reservation? Do the policies and the tactics exchange well?
2: Some things exchange well. The Native Americans in, in the United States are extraordinarily similar to the Natives who are marginalized in Mexico, except that maybe not with the benefit of having more closely tied to the land and having all these skills that if I work with a group of Mexicans in a squatter community in Mexico, NETSA or Tizac in in Cuernavaca or Mexico City, or whatever, I know that there's a certain level of skill building in agriculture and things like that that's probably in their immediate history that I can draw upon the an asset. I don't have often that benefit with the Native Americans, but the conversations are very similar. So it's the the way the conversation evolves so they understand what the next steps are. Basically what I'm doing is being a facilitator, essentially. In Mexico, I, I had the advantage of kind of being able to begin to see how assets accumulate through social capital to create things that there was no resources for. Having started in Mexico made me, Incredibly fast on my feet or on our feet, that's the basic initiative, to realize what was often thought to be impossible with basically social assets, social capital, and then kind of build these strategies in a very complex way. It's interesting because the skill sets that we developed in Mexico often I found the communities to use them to address other problems. Like, for instance, when I started to work in Mexico, I started to build schools. And the only reason I started to do schools is because they came to ask me to do something else, like a plant nursery or something crazy like that. And it, no, it was, like it was a laundry nursery. It had this complex program where the women wanted to have some jobs. And it was a weaving community. It had a series of opportunities for women to all work together in a place and have jobs and income. And as we had the conversation, we realized what they were looking for was empowerment, political empowerment. And the way for them to get political empowerment was... Through the creation of a school, it turned out at the end when we finally resolved that it was political empowerment they needed, we realized that what we needed to do was build a school. That they didn't want to go to the next village to the bigger city to get their kids educated. If they had a school within the village, they were able to become a political unit and become more recognized by the political process in the state. So, the conversation led us to understand the real goal and to understand what we really needed to get there. So, anyway, so we built these schools and then. Over the next few years, we built a dozen schools. And then what, what's interesting is that when the women came back to me at one point and said, we really, uh, because it's mothers who are really kind of make informal settlements work, and they came back to me and said, you know, we, it's health, you know, it's, it's not just this, but we, we have to really, the problem is the issue that so many of us get sick and so many people die young and things like that, and we have no facilities here, they continue to be in the city. So they organize themselves around to become promoters of, Salud, salud y medio ambiente. You know, so they became promoters of health and the, and, the, and the environment. They understood from the schools where I was trying to promote the engagement. Every school I built, I tried to say, okay, this school is not just a school, remember, it's really a kind of encapsulation of all those things you told me that were relevant. And the school just represents that 90% that we see unseen, which is all the conversations. So just think of this school as the kind of stage for doing organic gardening and promoting and doing workshops and things like that so the women just then decided you know can we use this strategy of having created this relationship to the government to promote health clinics and I said yeah I mean why not I mean of course it wasn't a perfect fit and I said well let me see who we can get you know we'll we're moving into doctors. Doctors are a special breed, you know, coming from a family of medicine. I said, you know, so we'll need to kind of uh, impress them. So I invited some friends who are professors of medicine in University of Washington, Stanford. that came down, and so we helped lubricate opening up the medical thing. But basically, the women had figured out a strategy based on how we got there before and understanding how a clinic would serve this larger set of goals and needs and they became these promoters. We built a series of clinics for them. And they've continued. Twenty years later, they're still building clinics. They are a recognizable entity that continues to build this. And it's actually they have evolved over time. They started saying, okay, how do we do this? You know, you built all these composting toys in each of the schools and clinics and things like that. Can we do it? Can we promote it in every household? You know, we should have those at home. So their sense of health has expanded, you know, and it's connected to education. And so if i was to map all the things that emerged out of that like schools you know which were about political empowerment and you know keeping native traditions like farming and things like that and began to include the clinical aspects which grew out of it because the idea of of education was became tied to health and to that which then became associated to children's libraries which was the next thing and now there's an active group that has been promoting for decades that, and there's a group doing the composting. But you could go out through this, this informal settlement especially outside of Cuernavaca which is now 2 million I think the settlement. And you could see these buildings and say, oh, yeah, there's the work of the basic initiatives, et cetera. When I see them, I see this enormous maps of needs and strategic ways of addressing those needs in which these buildings are physical emanations or physical presence of this larger, very complex universe of vision of how this community works, where the assets are, where the capacities are. Where are the needs? Where the community wants to head? And then these buildings are strategic points, acupuncture points, in activating and making possible this larger vision.
1: For you, uh, the building becomes somehow relational objects. It becomes a way to establish a conversation, to fulfill specific needs, but also to understand better for a community what are their needs and to go on in, uh, in defining their empowerment through uh, a progressive construction. You frequently also insert a pedagogical aspect. So through doing this, you also involve students that also learn through this process. How would you actually describe this, uh, this insertion? I mean, because I think it's, uh, it's such a, a fundamental aspect of your work. One
2: time I received an award as the whatever top professor at the University of Washington. It was very nice. And came with a really nice prize. And for the annual edition of the university newspaper, they interviewed some of my former students and they uh, Anyway, where well, you got radicalized? I started out with Mexico because I wanted to overcome something that I myself experienced when I came to the United States, which I thought was at the heart of the problems the United States had. You come to the United States if you come from a like place like Argentina where we've been affected by US foreign policy and I came up with it, I ended up here because of that that you could, in a sense, you could imagine them as this malicious country, and yet you come here and you find these generous, fantastic people for the most part, and there's this disconnect, and you realize that Americans were very disconnected with the world. And one of my intents in bringing American students initially to Mexico 30 years ago was actually to take them across the border to see these people that they missed, so misunderstood and so maligned if they lived and worked with them, their attitude about Mexico changed change forever. And I'm proud to say that with very few exceptions, that's been true. Illich talks about this as a kind of, and um, Enrique Dussel, a great philosopher who also lives in Mexico and exile from Argentina, has also written about, about the displacement of the self, that if you take somebody out of their comfort zone, and you place them in something which they don't recognize, that's the best Place to begin to get them to reevaluate their assumptions. So I just literally did that. I took students and to put them to live in the middle of a squatter community, an informal settlement, so that they had to rely on their neighbors and the people. They ate with them, they got to know them. They had to work, convince the people that what they did and what they were doing was of value so that they would help them, because without the community and us working together, we would never realize the project. And through this relationship over a year, transformed the sense of these people, and transformed the sense of how architecture operated, and transformed the idea of how a project came to be realized, that it came not to be realized just by saying, okay, we have the $100,000, we need to build this, but really realized that there wasn't the $100,000, and what needed to be done was to collectivize people's capacities and assets and knowledge, and begin to connect with people, and that this was a different, maybe more organic, more community grounded approach but in the end it would give them as much fulfillment as building a beautiful deconstructed building as Eric said last week so I think that how do you maintain resilience as people are dramatically cast out of their where they might have been villagers for thousands of years and end up in a city like Mexico City with no connection to their original life and how do you do something that maintains that connection and maintains what's of value to them and
0: keeps their human dignity and
2: That's a kind of a broad agenda for a, for a student of architecture. But by the time they leave, I think they understand it.
0: That's a, an extraordinary account. Thank you very much. And I, I think, you know, in a, in a strange way, Emiliano and I have considered ourselves your students as well over the years and through your influence in, in this profession and your, your contributions to humanity. So thank you for the inspiration and the insights on this important topic. Thank you for the t- opportunity to share
1: it. Thank you very much, Sergio. Thank you for your time and uh, for being with us and for going on and inspiring uh, more students and more communities. I think that what is really, uh, you know, also amazing of uh, this narrative, it really shows how ultimately you're building more social capital, you're building more uh, community in the cultural sense, uh, rather than uh, just uh, facilitating infrastructural uh, uh, buildings and, uh, and structure. So it really shows how ultimately, uh, you know, communities are built by uh, creating these relations and these connections rather than by being uh, dwelled under the same roof, which is, I think, a beautiful concept.
0: Well, I'm glad that came through. Thank you both. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We'd like to thank our guest of the last two weeks, Sergio Pallaroni of the Center for Public Interest Design at Portland State University. For more information on Sergio and the Center's work, please check out our website at currystonedesignprize.com. There you'll find helpful information on Sergio as well as on all of our past guests and winners. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation and the Curry Stone Design Prize. If you haven't already, follow us on Facebook and Twitter for all the latest news on social interest design.